I know it's crowded tonight. <clears throat> I'm going to stand here and not give you any run for your money, Mike. Thank you so much, Claire, for playing for us. I first heard that song. I'm not sad to say. I'm not embarrassed at all to say. I heard that song about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, when Alan Jackson put out a, a CD for his mother called Precious Memories. And it's some of the greatest gospel songs and, and some hymns and that's what we call a gospel song because it's got a chorus I know some people that would never assign that to be sung in a church because that's camp music or something but um here's why I like it so much when I first heard it I said that's a little bit of a bloody song and I think that people get emotional about concepts that they latch onto, and they don't really know what we're talking about sometimes like the blood of Christ I want to tell you, the blood of Christ is the most important concept in all of the scriptures, and it is not about liquid. That song about the, the fountain flowing full of blood is about the redemption of Christ where he paid for our sins at the cross. And it's a figure. It's always been a figure. Jesus is not a physical lamb, but he is the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. The reason I am so excited about that song, besides that it was reintroduced to me uh, not many weeks ago by someone who's present here tonight with her fiddle, the reason is as I have gone and looked at the actual lyrics of this song, it's talking to Christians. Most of it is not about people that might be believers and need to really make sure they're believers. Most of the lyrics are about Christians that need to make sure they're walking by faith moment by moment, and that is straight out of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 is asking that question, if it, it's suggesting that question that we ask ourselves. Are you washed? What do I mean? Are you walking in fellowship with God? <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, with God... And yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, that would be of his righteousness, of his perfect character, of his goodness. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. Is what, it doesn't mean with us. It means we have fellowship with God because that's the context. And listen, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us literally if you will to bring out the present greek it goes on cleansing us from all sin and he'll talk about cleansing in a minute some more he says if we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us and so forth now this is about fellowship with god and the cleansing that is offered in 1 John 1, 9 is mentioned in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's we have fellowship with God. I know when you hear one another, you think the, the church. But read it in its context. The other in view is God. We have, that's saying you're brought into what Jesus taught the, the disciples 
in uh, the upper room discourse. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his God, the Father's son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Are you washed in the blood? That's a very applicable question to Christians. It's awesome when you understand what the blood of Christ means, when you understand what cleansing is, what fellowship with God is, uh, some uh, very dear concepts to us. Tonight we're in John chapter 21. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. I'll open us in prayer. Father, we recognize that when you justified us, it was to your glory when you declared us righteous with an infinite, perfect righteousness of God to our account so that we would always be approved of by you, pleasing to you in our position, that this was an amazing grace work. And Father, we recognize that when we walk in the light as you yourself are in the light, that means it is not only our position of perfect righteousness that we are bringing forth your character And it is your grace again, your spirit's work in us, something we could never earn or deserve. Father, these things are too marvelous for us, but this consideration is what it means not to neglect our so great salvation. Father, we want to pay attention to what your son has taught his disciples, and therefore they've taught us very closely to really want your spirit to train us in righteousness this evening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 21, please. We're in John chapter 21. We were here together. Two weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 20 and the Great Commission statement in John chapter 20, which, uh, as you recall, in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. We said, "Uh uh-oh, exactly, the last statements in all the Gospels have this sending thing happening, this Great Commission that we keep looking at in our study of on mission. So here, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And when Jesus has said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you're on a mission, and now you're going to need power to do the mission. It's the same thing in Luke 24. It's the same thing in Acts 1, when you see these themes keep coming up again. And we want to summarize we want to summarize what we saw in terms of the mission, because it's been a couple of weeks. We said... The mission is a major theme in John's gospel, if not the theme of John's gospel. I know that he says believe and live dozens of times. He does. But the thematic thing that keeps going through there, you have to have this as one of the key structures in John. The Father is revealed in the gospel of John, perhaps like nowhere else. And he's always or most often referred to as the one who sent me. My Father who sent me. My Father who sent me, as we saw last time. And so the sending of the Son is this theme of who Jesus is as the Word, the Word of God, the communication of God. And so when we see uh, ourselves being sent by Him on mission, we can say John is sewing this together, that the mission Christ has been on is our mission now in in a new phase. John's account of Jesus' Great Commission emphasizes the transmission of the Father's mission to the apostles, as we saw, as the Father sent me, so also I send you, that's verse 21, and their reception of the Holy Spirit to equip them for it, their reception of the Holy Spirit in verse 22, to equip them for that mission, and then the giving of authority, as you saw in verse 23. And so how do you apply this? We're not apostles, but we have been sent on this mission 
because especially of what Matthew says that the disciples who become the apostles are supposed to do. They're supposed to make more disciples. What a disciple is is one who makes more disciples. You are a self-replicating being in that sense. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is to be self-replicating, and we, we've seen in Matthew in great detail how to do that by baptism, the conclusion of an evangelism process where you have a con- convert, and by disciple-making of teaching, by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you. So the resurrection message in John 21 can be outlined like this. In verses 1 and 2 of John 21, uh, you have um, the setting for a story which will outline for us the provision and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Father's purpose in our mission. The provision and power of the Lord Jesus Christ for the Father's purpose in our mission. And the setting is established in verses 1 and 2. And this is what we all, I've always referred to this as the fish breakfast story. The best fish breakfast in all of world history. Jesus knows how to cook. He uses a charcoal fire. As we all know, that's the best way to cook fish or pretty much anything else. And that's what he does in this story. The provision and power of the Lord Jesus Christ for equipping us for God's purposes. So in verses 3 through 11, you have what I'm calling fishing for Jesus. And I don't mean that Jesus is what you're trying to catch. Fishing for Jesus. The disciples begin in verse 3 with fishing for themselves. And at the end of the story, they have a net that cannot barely be uh, brought in full of fish because they're now working for Jesus Christ. Because he says, little children, do you have any fish? Throw your net over here. They find themselves when Jesus is present, that when they're doing what they do for his sake, that they're successful. And these men, by God's grace, and my prayer is for you also, they're not going to be successful when they're not doing it for him. When they're not working on his behalf, when they're not working with him present, when they're not uh, benefiting from his work in them, then no dice. In verses 12 through 14, that story concludes with him feeding them, which is reminiscent of much of what we see in Jesus' ministry with his disciples. And then the commission. The commission of Peter in the threefold, do you love me, feed my sheep. This is the part of the Great Commission which draws our discussion on being on mission to a close. It's going to be a fitting close for a really important insight that I pray that you have in the spiritual life. God has a plan for your life. It centers upon the word of God having its way in you as you love God by obeying him. And you, as a disciple of Jesus who love him by obeying him, will find yourself participating in others getting hold of the word of God so that they can love the God of the word by obeying what the word says and the power that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us in the Holy Spirit so that they can tell others who will become those who have the word. It's a, it's a replication that you see Jesus very clearly, very dramatically demonstrating in verses 15 through 17. Verses 18 and 19, you have a prediction of Peter's suffering, which we won't cover in much detail in this study. And then Peter asks about John. And do you know how, do you know how verse 19 ends? You follow me. You know how verse 23 ends? You follow me. It's, it's very terse how Jesus shuts Peter down with his concerns, which are not on topic and therefore distracting from the mission. You do what you're called to do. Don't worry about how you're going to die. It's going to hurt. 
Nevertheless, you follow me. Don't worry about how he's going to die. It's none of your business. And then you have the closing of the Gospel of John, um, which uh, is in verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did. This, is my, this blows my mind when you have this written down. This is a test right here of whether you believe in the Bible. Listen to, listen to the test at the end of John, 21, 25. What does it say? There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I believe he has to be talking about the deity of Christ who holds all things together by the word of his power. Okay, we go through in some detail this wonderful story of Jesus by the Sea of Tiberias. After these things, a verse of chapter 20, where he breathed on them to signify the coming of the Holy Spirit that would be on the day of Pentecost. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples upon the Sea of Tiberias. Now he revealed himself this way. See, that's the way you start a story. Tell them this is about Jesus in resurrection revealing himself. That is awesome. So I've selected these, these passages as mission passages. But more importantly, they're resurrection accounts of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. But here's what you want to say. What does Jesus have to say to the disciples, to us, right before he ascends, but after his resurrection? What are his last words? That's why the study on mission. We're studying. See, the resurrection is really important. It's the center in terms of historical evidence of our faith. Because you, you can't fight the empty tomb. It's just empty. And the eyewitness accounts of those that saw him die, saw him laid in the grave, and saw him risen. And that historical fact, not, not wishful thought or a nice story, but that historical fact in the same time and space we live in, ties us to our historical mission. What does he talk about in his resurrection? Hey, you've got work to do. I'm going to give you power to do it. Verse 2, they were together, Simon Peter and Thomas, who's called Didymus. Apparently Thomas has a brother that looks a lot like him. That's Thomas the twin. Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. We don't care what their names were. Does it matter? Isn't that nice, too? There are a couple other guys around. Doesn't matter. You know, that's me and you. That's what we want to be. We just want to be there. Don't name me. Just let, Jesus knows my name. It's a secret between us, the name he has for me. I'll just let him have that. That's, that's where my exaltation will be. He has me in mind. That's the only glory we want. And so that's what I'll bring out of verse 2. Now they're going to go fishing for Jesus. Fishing. For Jesus. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, well, we are also going with you. And they went out and embarked on a boat immediately. And in the night they caught nothing. I love the, the juxtaposition of t- these two thoughts. Immediately they got in the boat and went out. And then all night they caught nothing. That is a hurry up and wait if I've ever seen one. That is just rush to the boat to do nothing except uh, reps. They're doing reps. They're doing net reps. They're throwing the net out. They're pulling it in. Nothing. 
They're throwing the net out. They're pulling it in. Nothing. And you know there's no coffee on this boat. All night long. They just keep doing that. And uh, I am thankful that I'm not part of this party. The next morning, though, I guess it would have been worth it to have been there, to have seen uh, this encounter that John beautifully describes. Uh, but he, doesn't, he just doesn't give us much detail in the Spirit's uh, sovereign grace. Uh, we weren't supposed to have much more detail. But in the night, they caught nothing. In verse 4, now when daybreak was already coming, Jesus stood on the beach. So the idea is that in your stories, you read the story that already is uh, we just skipped a whole night, and you've got some salty, pun intended, some salty sailors, fishermen who did not have a successful evening. Now, he's already done this with them, but he's going to do it again, this miracle of the fish, the fish catching. Um, when daybreak was already coming, Jesus stood on the beach. However, the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is one of the most common themes in the resurrection stories is they don't know who they're talking to. They see a figure. They don't know who it is. Mary, oh, it's you, it's you, Jesus. He breaks the bread and lets them then see. There's something about um, the way you're being shown the concept of revelation. God is opening the curtains. And if he doesn't open the curtains, you don't get to see. They don't know who it is until Jesus chooses to reveal himself. Watch that, that's important in the story. The disciples did not, and by the way, when Jesus does reveal himself, it's not for a hug. There will be hugs, but it's not for the hug. Why does Jesus reveal himself in the story? Because he has important mission instructions for Peter and the, and the associates, the disciples, because they have work to do, because he's got something important that he's committed for them to do. So they don't know that it's Jesus. And in verse 5, Therefore, Jesus said to them, children, I love it, paideia, paideia, little, little ones. He's not older than these men, at least not much, but he calls them children. I wonder if it's kind of like um, uh, sometimes when you're being um, kind of with a little bit of slang in our culture, someone of the same age might call the other people in the group kids, hey kids, let's get together. Is that what's happening? I don't know. It's an interesting idiom that he calls them children. But in John 20, he calls them brothers. It's all my brothers, my brethren, which is brothers. But he calls them children, and this definitely establishes him in a higher position in the conversation. See, when Jesus Christ reveals himself, he's the Lord, he's not your buddy but he's your best friend that you could ever have. And he's very intimately interested in your performance. He's very interested in your success. And he is providing by his revelation, or even right now, all that you need to succeed in all that he has for you to do. <clears throat> Children, you do not have any fish to eat, do you? Now, the word for fish is a fish to eat. And so that's why I've translated it fish. And we've got the do you at the end of the sentence because that's how we say a sentence in, in question. But in, literally in Greek, it says, children, you do not have any fish. It's a little terse. Children, don't you have any fish? And they answered and said, no. And that is ooh in Greek. But Jesus said to them, throw the net on the right side of the boat and you will find Fish to eat is what the object of the word find is. 
Throw the net on the right side of the boat. It's always going to be the right side. Throw the net on the right side of the boat. And I know that was very gauche of me to say that. (laughs) Maybe you think I'm somewhat sinister for saying it's always on the right side. Sinister is Latin for left. Gauche is French for left. All right. They throw the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find. Therefore they threw, and they were not strong enough to haul it in from the great number of fish, is the literal, very terse Greek of John. They threw, and they weren't strong enough. Compound sentence. They threw, but they weren't strong enough to pull in the fish from the great number of fish, to haul in the net from the great number of fish. And this is a revelation. It's a, it's a fishing revelation. It's a natural occurrence, but it has a supernatural cause. They're just fishing. It's not like the fish all of a sudden turned into mythical creatures and started flying around and, and making little rainbow clouds or something. It's, it's just they're fishing, but their fishing is now miraculously successful. I can see no other purpose for John to say this story than they were on their own failures, but with Jesus present doing it his way, successful. They were on their own totally a failure, but in Jesus' care, completely successful. I think that is the very clear binary message. And my prayer is that this will be the case for you as well. And that might sound like a curse. I pray that on your own, I pray that on my own, you pray for me that on my own, I will fail. Because... I will be failing anyway in what really matters, which is the accounting of God, his perspective. I pray that we will be successful when God gives us success and we will be a failure otherwise. And then I can never take credit. I can only give God the glory for his grace because it will always be his grace. This is John chapter 15, same gospel. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And that's what's happening here. They couldn't catch until he says what to do. They obey him and now they can catch. Notice Jesus met them where they were. They decided to go fishing. He had a mission for them. They're going to wait for him in Galilee. They are in Galilee. They're going fishing. I've heard people say, well, they're not on mission. They're off fishing. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They haven't received power. He said, meet me in Galilee. They're in Galilee. He didn't say they couldn't go fishing. I think Jesus meets them where they are. He really does. And he joins with them in their enterprise. And he's going to show them the real secret of success. It's not being the expert fisherman. It's not the luck of the draw. There is no such thing. The success is the Lord's alone. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's a lot of words John said in Greek to say, John, (laughs) the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Hakurios Estim. Hakurios Estim. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, Hakurios Estim, it's the Lord. And so Simon Peter, after hearing that it was the Lord, all, he restates it. John restates what he said to Peter. So after Peter heard those words that I just said, it is the Lord, tied on his outer garment, for he was naked, gumnas. My Bible says stripped for work. There's no word for work here. The word is gumnos, where we get the word gym or gymnasium. In the Greek system of the Olympics, we've got sculptures of this. This is well known in history. Gumnos means you're dressed for the, for the gym, which means you're naked. Now, wearing an undergarment for work is probably what we're talking about. 
but it is no way to receive the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're going to uh, put on our outer garment, which just means get dressed. So Peter is not dressed for any kind of company, much less the most important person in the universe. And so, uh, um, well, the most important human in the universe who is one person of the most important being in the universe. And if you understand what I mean, then you understand I'm just talking about orthodoxy. And if you don't know what I just said, then you need to work on your Trinitarianism. All right, so Peter, after hearing was the Lord, tied on his outer garment, for he was naked or stripped, to, stripped down to undergarments, and he threw himself into the sea. Now, if somebody tells you that Peter had to be naked because the word is gumnos, you can take them to the Bauer, Donker, Arndt, and Gingrich lexicon, third edition, and show them that in Greek and Koine times, this word for naked could mean stripped to the waist or stripped for work, because that could be how it was used. And the point is, you can use naked and don't mean completely naked in English, too. And uh, don't, don't argue with people about words. But the word that Peter uh, uses for what he does with himself, or that John uses for what Peter does with himself, goes right along with the throwing of the nets. Throw on the other side of the boat. So they threw, and they, couldn't, they weren't strong enough, remember? Now Peter throws himself. That's what it says. He threw himself into the sea. It's awesome. I just imagine a belly flop. It's the, so, so he gets dressed and then jumps in the water. It's a very emotional, uh, impulsive person that we're dealing with. That's his makeup. That's his nature. God can use any kind, all kinds of people. And if you're an impulsive kind of person, that's okay. So was the Apostle Peter. If you're a little bit reserved and you're like, Peter, we're 100 yards from the, from the shore. We're going to row to the shore faster than you're going to swim. If, if you're John, kind of a little bit reserved, you don't go in and check the garments and, the, and you don't have to go handle the, the cloths, the wrappings in the tomb. You can kind of stand back and see that it's empty and see, you see that the Lord is risen. Peter's got to go in and handle it. John has to express, and ex- I, ha- I believe he had to have a little bit of patience with Peter. But notice the way John tells the story. I got to the tomb first in John 20. I got to the tomb first, but Peter ran in. John is really giving you an idea of what Peter is like. And I think by contrast, John is a little bit kind of the straight man. And in the comedy duo, that makes the Apostle John like the Dean Martin character. And it makes Peter like the Jerry Lewis character. I mean, that's a silly description. But that's, you're seeing their personalities. One of them is a little bit reserved, a little bit calm, and, and really has his priorities straight. He's, I'm sitting by Jesus. That's how, Pete, that's how John is. And Peter is a little bit given to fervency. Now, I want to say something about this. People, all of us, only know what it's like to be us. You only know what it's like to be you. You don't know what it's like to be me. I don't know what it's like to be Peter. I'm probably more like Peter than John, personally. I have to admit. Probably more like Peter than John. You're like, no. Okay? Just by personality, I have to imagine, my, I'm, I want to be more like a John, but I'm probably more like a Peter. Having nothing to say, David said. You know, that's cross I bear. But God uses every one of us, and he knows exactly what it's like for you to be you. He knows all that he needs to know about how to use you. And what I see sometimes is is, uh, the Peters with their fervency. Look at the Johns with their, the, the people that are like John with their, um, more phlegmatic, perhaps, or just not as, not as intense emotionally about everything. 
and say, well, what's wrong with him? He's not, there's no fervency over there. Let's get some fire in your belly. And he's like, hey, I, I'm at a 10 right now. I'm really, really excited. I, I'm just bouncing off the walls, can't you tell? And the Peter guy is like, what's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? And you're like, yes, I love Jesus. What's wrong with you? Don't you have any self-control? Not for Jesus. And the point is that you can't make your experience the standard for someone else. Jesus Christ can use all of us. And he doesn't want us to judge one another on these concerns about our personalities or our relative level of fervency or, well, you don't really seem committed because you're not really all broken up about this. Hey, you can't live my feelings or my life for me. So we really need to relax about these differences. We really do. We need to relax about what God is doing with us. And Peter, Mr. Fervency, has to learn that in this story as part of Peter's training. Um, I'm not going to cover it a lot tonight, so I want to just share with you real quick. Peter turning around after Jesus told Peter he's going to suffer. In verse 20, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John following them. The one who also had leaned back on Jesus' bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrayed? He's identifying himself. He's talking about John. So I'm talking about myself in verse 20. So Peter, seeing John after being told he's going to suffer for Jesus' sake, said to Jesus, what about him? What about John? I've got to suffer. I'm going to have to go stretch my arms out and be taken where I don't want to be taken. Peter was, was killed by crucifixion according to historical record, historical tradition, what history we have. So what about him? Mr. Fervent says. And Jesus says, relax. That's not your problem. I'll be his Lord. You be my disciple. That's the problem. Peter needs to look at his stick to his own knitting. He needs to watch his lane. Because Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Your mission is not to compare your experience to John's experience. It's not to look out for what is going to happen with him or how are you going to treat him. It is not to look at the Joneses and say, well, they've got a better situation. Or look at the pastor and say, well, he's got a gift I don't have. Or to look at the uh, whatever. It's not to compare ourselves to the other person. It's to get ourselves behind the Lord Jesus and follow him. Him. It's an awesome, multi-layered message, and that's how John writes. But we're not going to cover that in detail, so let's get back to verse 8. So, so Peter, Mr. Fervency, threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, which my Bible says is about 100 yards. That's 200 distances from the average uh, person's elbow to the tip of his finger. That's a cubit that's probably being used in this discussion. So um, that's not quite a yard on me. And I bet my cubit is a lot longer than Peter's based on diet and nutrition (laughs) and records that we have of people, groups, and stuff. But um, I would say that 100 yards is probably close. So this is the picture. Peter has jumped in the water from a perfectly functional boat which is better probably at getting to shore than Peter is, which, by the way, there's work to do. Did you know that they caught enough fish where they're worried about breaking the net? There is work to do in this boat, but Peter is Mr. Fervency and impulsiveness, and we don't criticize him. We take him in stride and say, God, bless him and work in him and have your way in him. And he better say the same for us. Dragging the net of fish... So, so the, the, they've got work, and they stick with their, with their knitting. Verse 9, therefore, when they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire set in a place, 
set in place and fish lying upon it and bread. That's the most interesting uh, cooking uh, part of the Bible right there. Jesus likes to grill. I've always thought that when, um, when you had the offering system in Israel where they would share the offering with the Lord, it wouldn't be the whole burnt offering, but like the, one, of the, one of the sacrifices would be um, um, uh, beef, not always lamb. A lot of times it would be, it would be cattle. And, uh, and God would get the parts that we don't eat anyway. He would get the viscera and the stomach and stuff and the entrails, and then he would give them the, the meat. And, uh, and they, would have, uh, they would cook it over a grill. And that would have been awesome. Um, I think that that smell of steaks on the grill is pleasing to the Lord. It is a fragrant aroma. And there are other aromas associated with the worship system in Israel, but that's definitely one of them. Well, here you have charcoal. It, it literally, um, just real quick, this word, anthrokion, is um, where we have taken that and turned it into our word for coal, anthracite. We named it from the Greek word for what happens when you um, turn wood into charcoal. And we've known how to do that for a long time, I guess. But, um, but they saw char- Jesus already had food. Now, I want to say, did they need to fish to have breakfast? Did the disciples need to go fishing in order to have breakfast? No, because there's already what? Fish on the grill before they ever get to land. I think that's important. Jesus brought his own fish this time. He didn't say, what do you have? He just, he showed up and he's joining with them in the fish grill out. Now, he's not going to say, you didn't need to go fishing, guys. I've got this. Because he says, hey, go get some of your fish you brought, you caught. So my interpretation, he's not rejecting that they went fishing. He's just showing them that whatever they're going to do, he better be included or they're going to fail. And so what a privilege, what an incredible privilege to have Jesus Christ cook them breakfast and I've heard people say uh, that wouldn't have been a good breakfast. I think the, these fishermen, after working all night, would have thought this was soul food. They would have thought this is comfort food after, the hard, after one of those hard Jesus nights of ministry, like rowing across the Sea of Galilee um, in the long, the long night of uh, Matthew 14. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. And verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net into the, onto the land full of large fish, so they're not just a lot of them, they're big, megalos fish. And uh, 153 of them, so we're very specific to do an accounting. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now that's important. Why is that important? Because this is a miraculous event. See, we, w- we didn't catch any fish, and all of a sudden, just on the same boat, on the other side, we've got more fish than we can drag. Just one throw, we've been throwing, we threw a thousand times. We threw one time, we get more fish than we think we can haul, and the nets are breaking. Now, he did this again with them before, when he, uh, when he identified himself and revealed his power, and he's doing that again. And I want you to see, this is Jesus having, through showing his power, he's showing his provision for them. You don't have a God. Look at, look at me. You don't have a God who is only concerned for you but helpless to do anything about that. You don't have a God that wishes you well and says, be clothed, be fed. We don't serve a God who is so busy and important that he's not worried about whether you get breakfast after a long night's work of futility. We don't have a God who doesn't know that you're going to throw that net a thousand times and never catch anything. Because it was worth it 
when you got to see Jesus Christ at the end of it, when he revealed himself and said, I'm here, and now you're successful. It was worth it to be a failure in order to see him make us successful. And that's, I think, part of the lesson for the disciples here. We have a God who is both powerful and provides. He both cares for you and is infinitely capable of bringing about your very best and highest. In verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, not one, no one of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. See, John was the first to say it. Peter pretty much goes with the witness of John. It's Jesus, he jumps in the water, and he understands, and now the disciples all get it too. So um, what's all, why all this language? Why all this discussion? Why go, as we go slow and ask these questions? It's because the point is revelation. Everybody now sees it's the powerful one who can provide. It's the powerful God-man who can provide for us. Come have breakfast? What if Jesus asked you to have breakfast with him? Can you get in the, in the circumstance that we're in here? These are just some stinky fishermen. They're not smart people. They're not impressive people. I mean, unless you're impressed by a work ethic. These guys are good at ramming their head into a brick wall all night long. Nice work, guys. But they're not impressive people. But the most impressive human being of all history is saying, come on, let's have breakfast. Whatever your politics are, if the President of the United States calls you up, he's got your number. If he calls you up and says, would you join me for breakfast? Whatever your politics are, you're going to be challenged. Whoever the president is. You know why? Because it's the president. Maybe that's a difficult example for some of you. If you were English in the uh, 1700s and you didn't like what the king was doing with the colonies, you were part of the sympathetic to the American colonies plight and not part of what the king was doing and the king invited you to breakfast, you would say, I got to go eat with the king. It would be a real honor because it's the king. And so I want you to have a sense of what's going on in this little story here. Sometimes when we're not thinking clearly, there's nobody who is more important to us than ourselves. Isn't that true? We get hung up on ourselves, sin somehow gets in there and curves us in. I, I talk about that a lot, the curvature of sin. I think uh, some of the great theologians of history write about that. Sin redirects your attention from God to self. It's a strange process where all of a sudden, it's all about me. There was a country song in the 80s, What About Me? It's kind of a sad 80s country song. What about me? What about the Lord Jesus Christ is really the question we should ask. We all know that we have those narcissistic egomaniac moments where we think it's about us. We do. We have to be told it's not about us. Sometimes we have to tell ourselves that. And sometimes the pastor does it. Sometimes our parents do it. Sometimes it's our spouse or our best friend or just the person at work. Or we step on a rake and get smacked in the face and say, oh, thank you, Lord. It's not about me. But however it happens, it's a blessing. 
But once you're there, you're not there yet because it's not good enough to say it's not about me. That's an undirected humility. When you realize, when you really think about your salvation, that you have an eternal relationship with the eternal creator and you really reflect on what that means and you let that sink in and come home to you that I belong in a personal, intimate, connected way forevermore to the most important person in the universe, the highest ranking, most glorified, most exalted, most the, the wealthiest. Jesus is, is called the heir of all things. When I start to consider what I have, if I have Jesus Christ, I realize what that pearl of great price is really about. Let everything else go. You've got everything. Let it go. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. Let it go. And that's so much of what the Gospels are preaching, but I, I, Jesus says, come have breakfast. I, I had something else to do, Lord. You know, Jesus is always saying, come have breakfast. He always wants you to have fellowship with him. He always wants you to, to abide in him. He always wants you to consider him. And the strength that he provides when you do that is always available. In verse 13, therefore, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise and this was the third time Jesus revealed to his disciples, was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. So there's verses 13 and 14. This is the third of the resurrection appearances. Just so we're clear, what does this story depict? I don't want to show that slide yet. Yes, I do. He fed them. What does the story depict? At least these things. That Jesus reveals himself by showing his power. When, he, when, when John sees that we caught fish on the right side of the boat, that's the Lord. It's a calling card. What's the calling card? His power. And what power did was make us successful. So when we become successful, John is used to that thought process. I'm a failure, and then all of a sudden, this person's involved, and now I'm successful. That's the Lord. See how that pattern works? That's a rationale to keep in mind. Jesus is not only powerful, but he's providing He's revealing himself by his provision for his disciples. And his presence makes them successful. When Jesus is present, you can be successful in what he wants you to accomplish. He says to the disciples in Matthew 28, go make disciples. And then he says, behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age, to the end of the age of the ages. I'm with you forever. All the days of the the age, I believe he says. The total helplessness of the disciples is evident because they can't catch anything. Who planned that? Who made all the fish say no to the net? Why did God do that to them? Why did, He could have let them catch one or two. Why did, he, why did he dash their hopes all night? Because he wants them to never trust in themselves. He, never want, he wants them to never believe in luck. He wants them to never believe in any of the things that the world believes in, but only to trust in him. So if Jesus helps me catch fish, I can catch them. If Jesus doesn't help me catch fish, I don't want them. I can't catch them. And this is life. Now, this is preparatory to the commissioning in verses 15 through 17. The command to be on mission is directly derivative of this story about feeding. If, I, if you don't get fish from me, you're not getting fish. So you feed my lambs is how you love me is the whole message. I want you to notice that the fish breakfast was there whether they brought fish or not. They already, he already had fish laid out for them. Bring some of your fish to my cookout. There was already some fish here, but you bring some too. We'll do this together. 
Jesus doesn't need us. He is perfectly sufficient, and he can provide for you without you doing anything. And yet the Apostle Paul says, if we won't work, we won't eat. And so this brings us to privilege. What a privilege to be invited to fish cookout with the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what is he doing? He can do anything. Jesus can watch any channel of all of history. He can do anything he wants, anywhere he wants. But he's going to go to the Sea of Tiberias with some stinky fishermen and have fish charcoal breakfast. What a privilege to be invited to participate with Jesus Christ. That's fellowship. And I want to say that Peter's saying, let's go fishing. Hey, we kind of like this. I'm getting the old muscles back. I mean, I, I wanted to catch some fish, but it's just good to be on the sea again and just to fish some more. That's what I like to do. Peter, that's your profession. That's your employment. That's not your vocation, what you're called to do. It's great to be a fisherman unless you've been called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then you've got to be an apostle. But I kind of like to fish. Well, when there's a chance to fish after the apostling's over, we'll let you go fishing again. But guess what? You'll never be done apostling. So you're going to have to pick. Now, a lot of people take this passage to be only about Peter's vocation. He says, I'm going fishing, but he's supposed to be making disciples. He can't make disciples right now. He's supposed to wait for Jesus in in Galilee. That's what he's doing. But definitely, Peter, you're not going to catch any fish unless I'm with you. And I've got other work for you to do is kind of the summary of this message. Because we're going to go from fishing and success versus failure to feed my sheep. So I want to say the vocation for mission is much more important than employment. And every one of us can apply that. You don't have to leave your job. Please don't. But the vocation for mission is more, is more important than our career, obviously, than our, oh, I've got to put food on the table and all that. The, the way Jesus wants us to think about our provision is that he provides it. And what, the way he wants to think about our mission is that we, in the power he's given us, make it our focus. So in verses 15 through 17, let's quickly see Jesus commission Peter. A very familiar passage, hopefully, to all of you. We'll look at some details about it. Therefore, when they had finished, Jesus said to Peter, so we're done with, with a fellowship meal of success when Jesus gets involved. We've had a meal based on some success. Now, the, the illustration's over. Now it's time for some instruction. Simon, son of John, do you love, that's the word agape, me more than these? Now, that's a barb because G- Peter said he did earlier in... Um, these proceedings a couple days ago um, before the Garden of Gethsemane, for example, in Matthew 26. Do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love phileo you. Now, agape can mean to like someone in terms of approval. Like, I approve of this. It doesn't mean, but I don't necessarily want you to be uh, in, in, in the same bedroom because we're not the same family. But I like what you're doing. That could be, a, that's a pretty common use of agape in the ancient Greek. But the way Jesus tends to use it has to do with not approval, but provision for another. Selfless concern, regard for the other, that they receive what they need, that sense of agape. And this is how Jesus talks about us relating to him through the upper room discourse. If you love me, you keep my commandments. 
So when you provide for Jesus what he needs, what that really means is that you, his infinitesimally smaller subordinate, need to obey him. That's loving Jesus. So do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you like a family member. I am affectionate toward you, and I want to, to serve you, to please you, to, to, to be what you want more than anything in life. That's, the, that's what he means, phileo. He's saying, I love you uh, like, like, like I would love my own family. And it's more affectionate, it's more personal, if you will. Careful with that. And he said to him, feed my lambs. One of the great translation errors in Bible history <laughs> is in verse 15, <clears throat> where Jesus said, feed my lambs. And um, the, my English Bible says, tend my lambs. That's a really bad mistranslation by the Logman Foundation. They're going to reissue the, the, uh, a new translation of the New American Standard. I hope they fix this one. The verb is bosco. It means to feed. It means to provide the food for an animal. Feed. Tend? That's so vague. Jesus isn't vague. He says put something in their belly. Why do I think that's important as a pastor? Because he's talking about sheep. And because there's all kinds of things I could conjecture about what it means to tend sheep. I'm here. It's going to be okay. How are you going to make it okay? Well, I care. But I haven't fed you. I've just been there. We need to be there. There's an encouragement. I'm not putting that down. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, feed them. Feed my lambs. That is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them and by teaching them to keep all that I've commanded the New Testament scriptures in their application and obedience. That's how we make disciples. You have to feed them. This is the Great Commission. You don't, you don't teach unbaptized people to keep all that Jesus commanded because they don't have the cap- capability of serving him. They're not spirit-indwelt, born-again believers, but born-again believers who are therefore baptized need to learn the Word of God. And so this makes the word of God central in the Great Commission. Feed my lambs. All right, let's see if you all notice something. Do some observation with me real quick. Do you agape me? Can you all make that an if statement? Can you see what Jesus is doing here? If I love Jesus, and I'm Peter. If Peter loves Jesus, then feed my sheep. Do you see the connection between what Jesus is calling love, a verb, to love him, and a command he issues? Loving Jesus is obeying Jesus' commands. That's, that's how you love him. Do you see that connection? Do you love me? Then feed them. In other words, if you don't feed my sheep... You don't love me because the way you love me is you, you obey me. So here's my command, feed my sheep. I hope you can see that. It's, it's very tight in John. I think John teaches this more clearly than anyone else in the New Testament. 
that the relationship we have with God is so connected to our obedience. But it's not, it's not obedience without personal connection. It's not obedience of rules or following through program procedures or, or mechanics. It is a personal connectedness where I want to serve you, God, so I'm going to do what you want out of love for you. That's the idea here. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo, I love you. He said, shepherd or pastor my sheep. Poimino, one of my favorite words, because we translate it into Latin as pastor. Yippee, the pastor just showed up. There are a couple of interesting things I would would point out to you. I had a friend once tell me that... um, Jesus made disciples of these men, and then those were the only disciples of Jesus. Everyone else is the disciple of the people that came after Jesus. So you'd be like my disciples. I'm making you disciples of mine, is what my friend says. Nay, nay. Look at what it says. You, under shepherd, shepherd my sheep. I've heard some people say that, well, you've got to use John 10 or, uh, yeah, John 10, my sheep hear my voice, understand you can only have one pastor. Only single singularity of pastor because my sheep hear my voice. Very careful about that. The Lord Jesus' sheep do hear his voice. And that's about him. That's an I am passage to identify Jesus as God. Don't try to take that and make that about the pastor unless you mean Jesus. Ooh, don't do that. That belongs to Jesus Christ. And so these are, you're his sheep. That's why here at Preston, you'll hear Mike talk about the under shepherds, pastors that are gifted in Ephesians 4. Pastors are sheep dogs. Jesus is the shepherd and we're little border collies running around. That's very flattering to call yourself a border collie, the smartest of all you know, breeds of dog. We're the little collies running around working for the shepherd. But, but notice what that sheepdog has to do. Don't you call me a sheepdog. I won't call you a sheep. So, but, but he says, he says in this sense, the, the central the sen, the feed, and then now he says sheep or shepherd, pastor my sheep. He doesn't tell you what it means to pastor. He just says do it. Be a pastor to them. I think it means to feed them because then he's going to do it again in verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? You love me. Peter grieved. He changed it. Jesus said, okay, Peter, do you love me as a family member? Do you phileo? Jesus changes. Peter grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love phileo you. So Peter got to say phileo three times. Jesus said agape twice and phileo once. Okay. And you know that I love you. What does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. He said the same thing again as he did in verse 15. Did y'all know that? Have you, have you worked through this before? That he goes feed, shepherd, feed. The three commands that Jesus gives. I think they're all the same thing. Two of them are definitely the same word. In other words, how does a shepherd provide oversight? How does a pastor provide oversight? Or what, what's, what's Peter going to do? He's going to write First and Second Peter and he's going to go teach people the word of God. That's, it's teaching. It's feeding. It's providing the, the nourishment for spiritual growth and performance. If you don't know the commands of the Lord Jesus, how are you going to keep them? If you don't know Jesus Christ from what he said, how are you going to follow him and obey him? And this is the idea of, of Paul in, in Romans 10. You have to have a preacher that would communicate these things. So Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
In the Christian way of life, we express our love for Jesus through acts of faith obedience. It's never a legalistic rote obedience that isn't connected to I'm trusting in Christ, I'm, I'm abiding in Christ, I'm doing what he wants for his sake because he tells me to. And often that faith will come in very importantly because you'll be challenged not to do it, not to obey him. Remember those um, challenges to discipleship. This means we pay attention to what Jesus wants. Doesn't it? We know what he wants because we've heard what he said through the apostles and prophets. That is your New Testament. That is your Bible. We know exactly what Jesus wants because we've been fed by his shepherds under the, shep- under the great shepherd. I was, if I had time, going to take you to 1 Peter chapter 2 and show you who the great shepherd is and the guardian of our sheep, of, of the flock. It's Jesus Christ. But Peter is a shepherd and he's to do that under Christ. But it's always Christ's flock. We know what Jesus wants because we've heard what he said through his apostles and prophets. Our mission is commanded, therefore we express our love for Christ in carrying it out. And that's the most important insight from John about the mission. The most important insight from John about the mission is that if you love Jesus Christ, you express that by obeying his command to be on mission. It's personal connectedness to Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. I think the most important insight from Luke is that the reason we have the Holy Spirit in this age is because he's got work for us to do called the mission. That's why the giving of the Holy Spirit. So it's a squandering of resources, the greatest squandering of assets in all of history when Christians are not on mission. But here he does talk about the Holy Spirit in the previous chapter, but the point here is this is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ issue. And Christians that love the Lord but are not obedient to him do not love the Lord. Christians that study doctrine but do not obey Jesus Christ do not love him. Christians that do not study the word of God and do not obey him do not love him. And so I I see no shortcut to a, a radical commitment to time and energy in the word and the power of the spirit, really. Hazard number one on this insight about obedience and love. Hazard number one, interpersonal laziness that causes legalism. What do I mean interpersonal laziness? To do it John's way, the Apostle John, I've got to say, this is about you, Lord. This is about my relationship with God. I've got to go to him first. I've got to seek him. I've got to open myself to what he would do with me. I have to do that first before I start ticking off the rules. It's got to be about personal relationship and abiding in Christ. Without me, you can do nothing. But if I don't want to go there, if I don't want to open myself and, as Romans 6 says, present myself to God as, those, as one alive from the dead and my members um, as instruments of righteousness to God, if I don't want to do that, then I can just give me a list of rules. Just tell me what to do. It's interpersonal laziness. And we all have it. We all suffer from it. Uh, some form of laziness. This isn't just a problem for men, women. It's, all, it's a problem for all of us. We have to be willing for God to know us and for us to know him. And it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes consistency. 
The legalism is, well, I know the rules, so I'm just going to go do them. Well, I go go witness to people. I've got to go, you know, pass out tracts. I've got to go, you know, give because the pastor is going to preach the word and that's making disciples. That's the rule. So I just, I just give. That's, that's interpersonal laziness and you're a legalist because you're not actually loving Christ with what you're doing. And that's the, the real problem, I think, with uh, people that are confused about grace versus works. Grace works are always acts of love for the Lord Jesus Christ, really empowered by the Spirit of God. Hazard number two, cognitive laziness resulting in mysticism. Cognitive laziness, what does that mean? Pastor, we liked it when you were reading in John, but now you're just making up words. Cognitive laziness is when you don't want to think, when I don't want to think, and I certainly don't want to read. Real men read the word. And if they can't read, they have someone read it to them so they can think the word of God. Real men are men of the book. There's a big problem in our culture today, the feminization of men, the passive male, and uh, girls that aren't married. You need to be really watching close. When it's time, please make a good choice the first time. There's no second time. Don't go for some passive guy that hasn't figured out yet that he's supposed to be a man for the Lord Jesus Christ. Men initiate. Men are aggressive. And I don't mean in a bad way. I mean they're assertive. I don't mean toward women. I mean they are on mission. And they understand their life matters. And they better understand your life matters for Christ. God save us from passive non, well, passive masculinity, which isn't. But that's what's going on in our culture today. We're a Deborah and Barak Judges chapter 4, 5 culture. And part of this is cognitive laziness. If I can be entertained, I won't have to think about the waste of my life. And you do have a brain, and it's not just a switching mechanism to control the buttons on your controllers. Your brain is to think God's thoughts after him, to love him with how you think and what you choose. And so if we won't do the hard work of knowing God through what he said, and it really is the grace work of the Spirit working in us, if we won't do that, which you're doing beautifully, but if you if, if, think about the culture we're living, if people won't do this, what's the alternative to say, I love the Lord? It's just mysticism. I just feel a fondness toward Jesus. I, I love him, especially when we sing the songs I like to sing. I, lo- I K-love him. You know, that, no. That's, that's just mysticism. And you don't, look, I'm not saying Caleb is mystical. I'm saying if that's what faith is to you, if that's what your relationship with Christ is, is just feeling some sort of fullness or warmth without really knowing him through what he said, then you're just a mystic. And that's, that's really not a compliment. Disciples love Jesus by carrying out his instructions of making disciples by teaching them. That's John, 5, John 21, 15 through 17. Disciples love Jesus by carrying out his instructions of making disciples by teaching them. What do those disciples do? They love Jesus by carrying out Jesus' instructions of making disciples by teaching them. What do those people they teach do? They love Jesus by making disciples. You see, it's a replicating thing. It's this continuous thing. What Jesus told Peter isn't just for Peter. It's modeling. It's a pattern. It's a, it's a pattern for all of us in whatever capacity we find ourselves. You may be on mission by giving. You may be on mission by your presence. You may be on mission by how you, uh, you participate in communications or printing or sweeping or whatever it is you do. But make sure you've been gifted by God with a spiritual gift. You've been indwelled and filled by the Holy Spirit so that you would be effective in God's mission. Let us never say we love Jesus 
but don't obey him. Let's never say that we love the Lord, but we do what he said not to do. Or more commonly, we don't do what he said to do. Let us ask God that he would let us participate in his mission. Heavenly Father, we thank you for fellowship with you, for the privilege of thinking your thoughts this way, of knowing you, and of, uh, of considering the riches of your grace and your commands. Father, your commands are not burdensome because you've given us the Holy Spirit in whom we carry out all that you expect, all that pleases you. And you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Father, how can we not trust you? How can we not obey you with gratitude, with that loving gratitude that expresses itself in carrying out your commands? Yeah, we do, Father. We don't abide in Christ. We don't think about what you'd have for us to do. We shirk. Until we're hungry, until we're hurting, until we're somehow pruned a little bit for some reason, we get, we get rich and we get lazy. Let it not be so for us, Father. Give us success. Let us enjoy your son telling us where to throw the net. Let us enjoy the success of the mission as we rely on you. Above all, Father, let us remain in abiding in Christ on mission as an act of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.